Well, we're continuing our Finding Joy series through the book of Philippians. And we've, we've been saying like a major premise of the book is uh, there is joy to be found at all times. He repeats the words joy and rejoice 16 times in this very short letter to this early church. And he's saying there's joy to be found at all times. Today is when he really gets to probably the biggest of all the topics. And that is joy in the face of death. Joy in death. I mean, it's kind of like, well, how do those two things go together? Joy, death, I'm not, I'm not so sure. I think for a lot of us, it's something, if, if it were up to us, our choosing, death is not something we'd really want to think about. Um, for, for, for others, uh, maybe there's someone in your life or maybe even something you're yourself facing where death is a little bit more real. How can we find joy in death? The Bible has a lot to say about death, actually. And here, Paul really goes at it. He says, of all the things you can know about death in the Bible, there's a joy to be found even there. So we're going to unpack that as we look at uh, this text, um, how we can find joy in death with, with three thoughts. The first is we see death as enemy, okay? So to, to bring us up to speed, Paul starts his uh, the verse 18, second part of verse 18. He says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So what he's doing is he's kind of pivoting, okay? So last week, chapter one, he was saying, there's joy to be found in God's people. And we had a little bit of fun with that. It's like joy in other Christians. I'm, some of us are, I'm not so sure about that. And uh, yeah, there's joy to be found in God's people. One set of people he was talking about were those who are far away. That, 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 you know, people that we might never meet, but who are invested, who care very much for the church and want to see it going forward. Uh, you know, I'm, getting ready to visit this week a church in Texas who's been a part of the story of Current from day one. They've just been in every way partnering with us, believing in this mission and, and helping push things forward. So there's joy to be found in people that we might not ever meet. And then perhaps more interesting, the second part of that first chapter, he's saying there's joy to be found in other Christians who they might be doing great things, but they do it for weird motivations. People who are, according to Paul's words, who are trying to stir up trouble for him while he was in chains. They were, they were sharing God's love, but they were doing it out of rivalry and envy. It's like, that's kind of jacked up. But Paul says, you know what? However you slice it, verse 18, it doesn't really matter, does it? If they're doing good things, even with the weird motivations, the, the main thing is God's love through Jesus is getting out there. There's joy to be had in God's people. Today, he says, yes, and I continue to rejoice. And, it's, and he's, he's pivoting into talking about finding joy in his present circumstances. So last week we talked about how he's in jail and how he is now facing execution. So he's, at, he's facing death. And what I want us to notice here right at the beginning is, although his outtake on life overall is one of joy, he starts to sing saying, and I will continue to rejoice. It's joy, joy, joy throughout the whole thing. He's real about death. He doesn't try to paper it over. He doesn't try to water it down. He, sa- he has some things to say that about facing death and how hard it is. Uh, He says, yes, I will continue to rejoice. Verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Why would Paul have to pray about, like, talk about matters like being ashamed? Why would he talk about matters of, of needing sufficient courage? He was getting ready to face the Roman uh, authorities then, and they were getting ready to question his faith. 
They were getting ready to hang the, the you know, with, with ex- his execution in the background. Uh, they were getting ready to question his faith. And Paul was saying to these, Phil- these Philippians, this church there, pray that my knees don't buckle. Pray that I don't lose my nerve and I'm able to continue to speak about God's love even when, I ha- when they're threatening to kill me. Think about this for a second. Uh, we, we have a lot of information about Paul. It's, a lot of it is in the book of Acts where he was going around, he was starting churches. Paul, for what it's worth, faced death often. There were a lot of times that Paul faced death. For instance, when he was traveling about, remember this is not for 21st century America, you know, the roads were not very safe. He, he almost got killed by some wild beasts. Uh, there were a few towns that he rolled up into that didn't like his message and started rioting for the sake of lynching him. Paul faced death a lot. And every time he faced death, it was with, he was ironclad. He was, he was solid. He was set. But here he's saying, pray that I will have sufficient courage. Why? Because death is hard. It's an enemy. There's this guy, uh, Luke uh, Ferry, a uh, secular hum- humanist philosopher who wrote the book, A Brief History of Thought. And he basically said this. This was his thought. He said, all all philosophies throughout all of history are basically trying to deal with one thing. All of them. They're all trying to deal with one thing. And that one thing is death. And at the end of his book, he says, and of all those philosophy, of all that's out there on human thought, Christianity is by far the most equipped to deal with it. And he has a number of reasons for why he says this. But one of the biggest, he says, is because Christianity sees death as an enemy. It sees it as something that is tragic. It sees death as something that is straining all good things. In other words, the Bible is not interested in saying, you know what, it's all fairy tales and unicorns. It's not pie in the sky, by and by. Faith sucks. There's this interesting story in, in, the, in the book of John about Jesus' life where uh, Jesus, one of Jesus' friends, a guy named Lazarus, became sick and died. Um, and, and Jesus didn't get there in time. Um, he, he, he got there a few days after, uh, you know, Lazarus had passed away. And there's all this raw emotion, all this raw feeling. Someone even comes up to him and says, Jesus, if you had been here, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. You're the miracle worker. If you had just been here. And Jesus responds by saying, no, 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 no. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. I'm gonna, he's he's going to come back to life. I'm going to bring him back. And so the stage is set for this miracle to happen, Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. But then the oddest of things happens. The oddest of things. Jesus is walking to the tomb to, 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 to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he does something different than what he had done in all his other miracles. With, with all his, uh, excuse me, when he, when he gets there, when he gets there, all the people, there's, there's, this, profe- there's this processional, and everybody's upset, Excuse me, I'm, I'm moving to a different thought here. Bear with me, track with me. What, what happens is he gets there, and this processional is really, really sad. People are out there weeping. People are out there sad. And then something happens. Jesus does something he's never done before. He starts to weep. Jesus wept. The Son of God, who had just said he was getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, and spoiler alert, he ends up doing that on the way weeps, starts crying uncontrollably. Why in the world would that happen? Because death is terrible. It's an enemy. It's 
so much so that God himself is overwhelmed by the grief of it. It's, it's an enemy. It's tragic. Death is terrible, and the pain is undeniable. Paul's real about that, and yet, and yet, it do, it's not just an enemy. Paul goes on to show us that death also provides, of course, focus. It, it gifts, death gifts us perspective. What's fascinating to me about this text, this one in, here in Philippians, is we have a lot in the New Testament, that is the, the part of the Bible that's about Jesus' life and onward, the founding of the church, we have a lot of texts that Paul wrote here. And in all of those instances, we don't have anything near of what he gets ready to say here about what, how he approaches life. In this text right here, of all the texts that Paul write, we have his life statement. We're kind of into vision statements right now as a culture. We have Paul's vision statement, his definition of life, his bottom line. And you know what? It doesn't seem so surprising that this is where we'd have it. Why? Because he's facing death. Death kind of narrows his focus. And what does Paul say? Here's what it all comes down to. He gives it to us. He says in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. Now, this is such a profound and helpful thought. It's so important. It's worth, it's worth considering for a second. Um, for if to Paul to live was career, Forget lack of joy. This dude would have been depressed. Wouldn't you think? Last week we talked about it. He was a professional church planner. He was going around starting churches, and he was doing a really good job at it. He's showing up in a town, and that town could be diverse in terms of the intellectual, you know, the intellectual crowd, blue collar, white collar. It could have had a number of different religions here, there, a number of different philosopher thoughts with the key minds there. And Paul would roll up. He would just start preaching about God's goodness. He'd get into some debates, and people were putting their faith in Jesus. And churches were popping up, all in his prime. And yet, now he's in jail. All that was taken away from him, was it not? And yet, do you see how Paul talks about it? He's like, look, whether I die, whether I, whether I keep living, it's all okay. None of that touches me. You know, this last week, the basketball season started. You guys watching the NBA? It was all the season game openers, and there's a few more games going on. A couple of really tragic things happened for two players in the league. On their season day opener, for two big-time players, they had season-ending injuries. We were talking going up for a layup. One of them was going up for a dunk, coming down, knowing it like from the moment it happened that their season was done, if not more than that. It was so bad, actually, that opposing players were like visibly distraught and opposing fans were devastated. You know something's going on if the opposing fans, you showed up to root for their team, you have pictures in the audience of like for the opposite team. Why is that? There's pain involved and all that sort of thing. It's because these guys have been spending their waking life towards playing in the NBA. Everything they could. You know, all the practices, all the work in the gym, all the pressure cooker situations in front of scouting, scouts, all the travel ball, all the, the wake up early in the mornings, and the, it's not just on the player, but the families are invested. All of that to ha like get stripped away with the turn of an ankle? Actually, that would have been a good scenario. It was much worse than that. One of the players, an outspoken Christian, a guy named Jeremy Lin, uh, so he was, when it happened, he knew right away, and it devastated him. The motion of it, it devastated him. You could see it on his face when it happened. But that night, I believe it was that night, is right after receiving the results that confirmed his season at minimum is over, uh, he tweeted this. Let's see if I can find it. 
God's always faithful and in control. Paul wasn't living for past friendships or community relationships otherwise, uh, uh, community relationships either. If he had been living for friendships and for community, boy, again, he would not just have not had joy, he would have been depressed. All his buddies were elsewhere, 500, 300 miles away. And you know what he, his life was like as a prisoner in the Roman guard? He was chained to like a Roman century, centurion. Uh, that just would have not been fun. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, could you imagine the kind of person, you know, and 24-7, whenever he ate, whenever he had to go relieve himself, all that sort of stuff. Some of you introverts are imagining that and dying the death of a thousand cuts. I mean, it's just ridiculous. You think about that. That was Paul's life, and yet, what is he doing? He's not only not, he's not only okay with it, he's converting the palace guard to the faith. You know what? We looked at that last week. He's out there sharing his faith. For him to live was Christ. What do you live for? What do you live for? I mean, I, you know, I think about, uh, you know, what we live for. We, we can live for any number of things. Uh, and I'm guessing for most of us, we're not terribly sure what we live for. If we really think about it, what is it that bottom line we're living for? And it seems to me there's really only one way of, of knowing with certainty what it is we live for, and that is to understand if it were to be suddenly stripped away or if we were to give all our might at trying to accomplish it, at trying to achieve it, and for whatever reason it doesn't work out, we're blocked, it's whatever, and it just ruins us. There's no joy there. I think for if, if you're a, a follower of Jesus, sometimes the way we say it is something like, you know, God, I know, I know I'm not deserving. I know I'm not perfect. But man, why are you withholding this from me? Why are you blocking this from me? How come this is not working out? What are you living for? It could be obviously bad things, just inherently destructive things, you know, addictions, uh, 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 habits, those sorts of things. But it could also be wonderful things in, inherent of themselves, family, you know, career, relationships. But if, you know, let's say you're dating someone and it doesn't work out, and then after that it's just like, well, you know, there's just certain things that are just no longer worthwhile. Is that a matter of the circumstance or is that a matter of our approach to life, our perspective, our definition of what we're living for? Or in terms of our career, if, if, we're, if, if our career is collapsing and along with it our life is collapsing too, might that be more a root issue of how we approach life and what is most important for us? What do you live for? Um, I think, uh, you know, Paul here, even, even in the face of death, he was living for Christ. And here's what's so profound about this thought. He was living for the only one who offered him unconditional love. The only one that, it, that even death itself can't strip away. The only thing that is, it, it, even if Paul's trying his best to mess it up, it's not going to be messing up. Why? Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus, he came to live the life that Paul, you and me, couldn't live and to die the death that we deserve, that we might have life, forgiveness of sins, unconditional love in his name. And so when we believe in him and when we trust in him, we have the love that's unconditional, regardless, by the way, of death, the only thing that could end all temporal things. We can have joy even in the face of death because of this. 
What's really cool is it doesn't actually end there. When we live for Christ, there's an outflowing that happens, and we see that even in this text. Um, and that's an outflowing of if you're living for Christ, you're also posi- you're living for others. Those two things go hand in hand. You know, verse 22, af- after asking a rhetorical question, I don't, know, uh, I don't know if I'm going to live or die here, guys, but he said, if I'm going to go on living, verse 22, in the body, if I'm going to go on living, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Verse 23, I am torn between the two. That is between the thought of living and dying. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you, Philippian church, that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. What he's showing us is that living for Christ is integrally connected to living for others. They're the same. They, They go together. I've recently picked up the book, um, When Breath Becomes Life. Have you guys read that book by uh, Paul Kalanithi? Uh, I'm not going to say that name right. I'll call him Paul K. Uh, um, and I, I'm, I'm glad I finally picked it up because I've had three or four friends just say, you've got to read this book. It's about this guy who, after three decades of rigorous study, even from a little guy, this guy was studying his, his behind off. He's just studying, studying, uh, studying to become a neurosurgeon. And so medical schools, residency, all that, three decades of it, and what he finds out is at the age of 36 that he has late-stage cancer. And, of course, it's this tragic thing because as a professional, he's helping people, he's helping patients who have, you know, cancer and whatnot, terminal diseases, and now he finds himself as a a patient with a terminal disease. And the whole book, though, uh, the whole book, it's a real story, it's a great memoir of him basically thinking about this driving question. What makes life worth living? I mean, that's really the whole thought of the book. What makes life worth living? And the conclusion of the matter is living for others. As he's wrestling through it intellectually, experientially, emotionally, living for others is what matters. And you know, it's interesting, towards the end of the book, he doesn't do it in an overt, like a super overt way. He doesn't do it in a super preachy way, but he makes it clear. And you know, living for others, I'm doing that really because it flows out of wanting to live for Christ, my love for him. I, was meet, I met with uh, some, a friend here at Current this week and uh, ha- had lunch, and it was, it was a really good time. And, uh, you know, this, this guy um, had himself uh, faced stage three cancer. And he's now in remission, which is, which is great. Um, but I was asking him, I said, you know, what, you know what, how did facing death, you know, give you perspective? Like, well, how did it affect you? And he said, you know, I'm, I, I'm off, I was often asked the question, you know, are you scared of death? And he said, you know, uh, every time I answer that question, I was like, yeah, you, I, I'm a little scared, yeah. But, you know, really, no, I'm, I'm not. Because God's there. He said it was just death, ha- facing death had a way of helping him understand that the most important things were living for God, living for others. And he, you know, he was saying that he, he, he just wants to make every minute count. I remember at one point in the conversation, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you telling me that while you were in the midst of facing death, you were thankful for facing death? He's like, yeah. Can you put it that way? Yeah. Um, it, was, it was interesting. He, he said um, at one point, like uh, we were talking about how he, you know, this plays out practically for him. And he says, you know, relationships are what matters. He said, and what I'm trying to do now is not take any of them, even a lunch like this, for granted. I'm just trying to articulate for my friends, man, you mean a lot to me. This conversation means a lot to me. I'm sitting here like, what wisdom? What an awesome thought. 
Paul says here, it's fruitful labor to live for others because it's what, la- it's what will last. Specifically, he's living to help others progress and have joy in the faith. In other words, pointing people to him, to Jesus, helping people grow in him. Death gifts us perspective if we allow it to. The Bible has a lot to say about death, and one of the biggest themes is life is short. It's but a breath. We're like grass on the field. The wind blows over us, and we're, we're, we're gone. You know, when Cindy's dad passed away, it devastated both of us. I mean, he was just out of nowhere. He was in great health, not very old at all. Um, he had just put his faith in the Lord, and it, it only strengthened his faith. But after he passed away, it was really hard. We, we had a bit of a moment together of like, my goodness, we want this life to count. A verse that I've thought a lot about is uh, Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days aright, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Um, Death is in the background, but why wait until it's in our face to make the adjustments in life now? Um, To live for things that matter most. Here's how one Christian author put it. I thought this was really well articulated. If today were your last, would you do what you're doing? Or would you love more, give more, forgive more? Then do so. Forgive and get Give as if it were your last opportunity. Love like there's no tomorrow. And if tomorrow comes, love again. Uh, Finally, death as friend. Uh, You heard that right. Death as friend. Death becomes, in Christ, a friend. Paul says, for me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That word there, the English word, you know, it's strong, but it doesn't get the for, full force of it. it. It means at great advantage to us when we pass away. It's a, it's a great advantage to us. It's way better when we die is what Paul's saying. And just to be clear, Paul is not saying in the least, you know, I just want my miseries to end. You know, shoot me like a downed horse. I can't stand this prison guard anymore. He's not saying that. He's, man, he's loving the prison guard thing. He's not saying, well, you know, with, with being out there and what I could be doing, he's not saying end it. He's actually saying staying here is great, but he's saying his point is, you know, to depart and be with Christ is better by far. There's no soul sleep. There's no purgatory. It's we go and we are with Christ, which is awesome thought to me because it's not just every tear will be wiped away, every fear assuaged. No, the thrust of this is we get to be with Christ, the lover of our souls, and nothing compares to that. That is the greatest joy. You know, think about the time in your life where you've experienced the most joy. Maybe it's a time where you're so happy, you're so filled with joy, that it's even hard to articulate how awesome of a time it was. And maybe it was a big day for you, you know, graduation, a wedding day, or accomplishment, I don't know. Uh, for me, when I was a child, it was always the last day of school when the summer bell rang. I can't describe to you how filled with joy I was in that moment. To be a California boy in that weather, not loving school really much that back then, and all, and just to have the whole summer before me and to be a grade older, all of it was just like when that bell rang, I can still hear the bell. I still have a picture of where I am when I hear the bell, and I'm just so filled with joy. Even at the thought of that, it doesn't compare in the least to the joy Paul says waits ahead of us. For those who have put their faith in Jesus, when we pass, and we go to be with Christ. Paul is saying it is a gateway into the presence to be with Christ 
and it is the best by far, the lover of our souls, the one who, by the way, made all of this possible. I mentioned earlier that story of Jesus and Lazarus and how, you know, Lazarus had passed away and how Jesus wept and how that's really interesting. Like, why would the Son of God weep and how death is just such a, such a powerful and painful thing that even the Son of God who's getting ready to raise this dude to life would be swept up in, 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 in sorrow? And yet, to me, that's not the most interesting part about that story. So he gets to the tomb, and when he gets there, it says this. It says, he cried out in a loud voice. Now, when it says that, Jesus was doing something in this miracle that he didn't do in any of the other miracles. So Jesus had, there's a lot of miracles you could read in his life that he did. But in all of those, he was always a lot more subtle about it. You know, the wind and the waves, they're like they're crashing down on this little boat that he and his disciple, his 12 guys are in. They're freaking out. They're thinking they're going to die. And Jesus gets up and he's like, be still. And the waves and the wind, they are stilled. They are calmed. Or the dude who was dropped right in front, or lowered, I should say, right in front of Jesus on a mat, he was lame. Jesus said to the man, pick up your mat and walk. And the guy picks up his mat and walk. All of the miracles are like that. Jesus is kind of like, you know. But here, when, when I talk about the story of Lazarus and Jesus raising him from the death, it said he cried out in a loud voice. And you know what? That word underneath it is, is another interesting one. Uh, the English can't cover it all. It says, it's basically saying he is exerting everything in his being as he cries out into the tomb to raise Lazarus. You guys ever watch Olympic shot putters? You know what I'm saying? These huge dudes. I mean, we're talking six foot five, you know, strong dudes. They get that, I don't know, what is it, iron cast ball? I don't know what that thing is. Lead, I don't know. They, they get the whole thing. They work themselves up. They do a little ritual. They're just... I don't know, hyperventilating to give themselves more strength. And then they just heave, they heave, they hurl that thing, spittle coming out of their mouth and all, red in the face, loud grunt. Anybody in the whole arena can hear it. That's what Jesus was doing when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Why? Especially given all these other miracles where you just kind of like, be still, storm, storm. It was different because death was the enemy. Death was the great enemy that he came to deal with. In the garden of Eve, Adam and Eve were there, and they were told, hey, just, just don't eat of that fruit, of the knowledge of good and evil. And we looked at that story, if you want to, you know, there's a lot there we're not going to get into now. We, we talked about it over the summer. You can look online. Um, but he said, just don't eat that, and because the day that you disobey me will be the day that you die. You will surely die. And you, you probably know the story. They eat the fruit, but they don't keel over on the spot. In fact, the sun sets that day. They wake up the next day. Wait a minute, God. Didn't you say the day that they eat that, they will surely die? What's that all about? It's because the physical death part wasn't the big deal. It was part of the deal. It wasn't the big deal. The big deal was the spiritual death of being separated from our perfectly loving father in relationship. That is what it, this is all about. That happened and we lost the perfect loving relationship with the one with whom all goodness flows. You know, joy, peace, happiness, everything. When, when we disobeyed and when we continue to disobey today, we are, that connection is, 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 is hurt. That's what Jesus came to deal with 
in this life. The big deal for Lazarus was not him coming out of the tomb that day. The big deal for Lazarus, for Paul, for you and me, if we will receive and put our faith in him, was what Jesus did on the cross. And that was giving his life that we could have life. That when we put our faith in him like a little child, we would just receive and say, God, there's nothing I can do, but it's everything you have done for us. When we do that, we receive eternal life in his name. Eternal life, connection, a relationship restored with God the Father that will last forever. That's actually the hardest thing about not that is being eternally separated from God. But when we put our faith in the Lord, it's, be, it's, it's, that, it's because of what Jesus has done, we will have a restored relationship with him. Listen to how Paul, to another church, wrote these words. He said, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. In other words, Jesus defeated death on the cross. That was the great enemy, not the Roman oppressors, not human oppression, not natural disasters. There's a lot of bad enemies that, out there in that, in that sense towards us. What he came to slay was the great enemy, death, and not just any death, our death that we deserve. But here's what this means for, for us, which I just think is just, um, I can't, our life can be around understanding this more fully and more on that in a second. Paul says, for to, for, for to me, to live is Christ. The reason why he can do that, the reason why you and I can do that is because Christ first said, for me to live is you. For me to die is you. And so now we can begin to live for him. If you are here today and you've never received that, that is the gospel. That is the good news that when we put our faith in Jesus, when we receive and believe on his name, he gives the right to become children of God. You could receive that today. A restored relationship with God, joy, even in the face of death. But if you have received him, and let's say you're sitting here and you're listening to this sermon, and you're like, and you're like, David, man, I get this whole perspective thing. David, I, I get that I'm living for other things that probably aren't the healthiest. They might be good things, but man, I do go after them more than I should, and they do steal some of my joy. What what then? The answer is not, well, just stop. Do you hear that? The answer being just stop is going to take more of your joy away. You see that? If you just need to like gird up and not go after your career that hard, you're not going to be able to do that. Or not go after that relationship or not go after this, 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 or this. You're not going to be able to do it. You know what he says you can do and will begin to make a difference? To live for Christ. To make him your aim. Who's going to love you that even when you don't do that, when you fail to do that, he says come. That's what that means. And so to the extent we meditate on, we think about, we understand the depths of what it means that for to Christ to live and die with us is to the extent we'll start to feel joy, even in the face of death, even in the face of the worst of it all because he came to defeat death. Uh, that's the promise that we have here. God himself came into this world to live for us, to die for us, so that we can live for him and we can have him and we can extend that to others and that even through death itself, there's joy. Let me conclude with this, this quote. Come and see the victories of the cross. Christ's wounds are thy healings. His agonies thy repose. His conflicts thy conquests. His groans thy songs. His pains thine ease. His shame, thy glory. His death, thy life. His sufferings, thy salvation. Let's pray.